0: That's the other cool part about having writer friends is we get to vicariously enjoy all of their successes. It's pretty cool.
1: Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate drone living in Eastern Europe, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer
2: and proofreader also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. Fans of the Hashtag AmWriting podcast might have recognized that voice at the beginning. That's because today's guest is the wonderful Jess Leahy, teacher, writer, and Hashtag AmWriting podcast co-host. Jess was so kind and wise, and we loved our conversation about how a day job keeps writing fresh, how she manages travel and writing, and how she treasures her writing friendships. And you can find Jess at com on Twitter at Jess and on Instagram at Teacher And we hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed talking to her. So the purpose of our podcast is to talk about people who write while also having day jobs. And so, we would just like for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your current situation and maybe how that has evolved. What do you do to balance?
0: <laughs> balance. It's a big question. <laughs> balance. <laughs> balance. Well, balance is is a tough one. So uh, so anyway, I've been a teacher for the past 20 years. I've taught every grade from middle school from 6th grade to 12th grade. And I just found that when I started writing full-time, I couldn't do both well. I couldn't, I was going to give my students or the, someone was going to get short shrift. And so I realized what I was going to have to do was start teaching part-time. And that was, and also I have my own children as well. I have a 19 year old and I have a 14 year old and I have a husband and I have dogs (laughs) and I have cats. So, um, yeah, Balance was really, really hard when I first started writing The Gift of Failure. Um, my first book, because I was teaching all day long, I would come home and then right when my <coughs> younger, oh, and there's my dog, <laughs> right when the kid needed me was um, right when I was working on the other part of my full-time job, which was, you know, the writing. So, you know, my kid couldn't even count on me and that was not good. And then I started working in the evening and my husband would go up to bed and I'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm coming up in, uh, you know, just a little bit. So I started teaching part-time so that I could really focus on everything and and be present for the things you know might be present for my kid be present for my students and be present for the writing that was I just I found that I was incapable of doing it all believe it or not you know <laughs> despite what people say sometimes you can't have everything you want all the time so but in the end it's worked out great for me my part-time teaching job is a dream writing full-time has been my lifelong dream and you know my kids are old enough now that they want their Their own space and their own time away from me, and so I can be present for each of those things when it's time to be present for those things. And that's that's been really important to me. Trying to do everything in sort of a halfway halfway just doesn't work. I I feel guilty when I'm not doing the things I'm supposed to be doing, and guilty when I'm doing the things thinking I'm supposed to be doing something else. So that's been my answer: is to really be there when I'm there.
1: (laughs) If that makes any sense. Can I ask, because so much of the sort of discourse about day jobs or writing is sort of either you work and then you scribble on the side, or you quit and then you're a full-time writer, so it's so much about full-time. I guess I have two questions. One is, was it hard to decide to go part-time? Like, were you also sort of stuck in that way of thinking at that time, and can you talk us through that? And, And I guess just the second question is just to comment on that overall kind of dilemma. Yeah, I cried. I I was
0: tears. (laughs) I had been teaching middle school for a while and I loved it. And I did not want to leave. I did not want to leave teaching full time. I loved my job. Um, I loved my colleagues. Um, But I just I just couldn't do it. And I cried and I cried and I cried. The other problem is and this is just something to think about with becoming a writer and writing about the thing that you do for your job is it is very common for people to get a book deal and quit the job that has made them an expert in their field and editors everywhere just kind of sigh because (laughs) it's scary because all of a sudden, you know, if I quit teaching, I'm no longer credible as a full-time teacher. At least that's the way it felt. Mm -hmm. Um, So keeping my finger in the teaching, you know, keeping one foot in the teaching world was essential to me. Um, Not only for just because it's what I love, but because my credibility to write a book about education is a, I don't know, it felt to me a little suspect if I wasn't teaching. So continuing to teach was in some way, shape or form had to happen for me. So, you know, there's that person who, you know, gets a book deal because they're a sex therapist and then they, they stop being a sex therapist because they're writing about being a sex therapist. And the other thing that tends to happen to me anyway, is that when I'm not actively teaching, it's my writing about teaching just isn't as alive. Um, not mm-hmm. only am I not getting new ideas, but there's something very vital uh, for me anyway, about reporting or talking about writing about things that are currently happening or that I'm currently just thinking about. If I weren't in the classroom, it wouldn't be as Stephen King writes about talks about the fact that his writing is best when it's skin on skin, when it's like, really, he's really in it and he's not, distracted. And and for me, that's that's what writing about teaching is like. It has to be really present for me in order to be present in in my writing, too.
1: Yeah, no, that's, I think that's really valuable. Because the other thing that we often ask is sort of, what do you think that you get from your day job that you bring into your writing? But that sounds, I mean, sounds like it's just completely... A, a synergy between those two for you.
0: Well, and sometimes it isn't just you know, it's not like something happens during the day and then I go home and write about it to myself or whatever. It's it's a It's this continuing process of learning about what it means to be a teacher. And also, my teaching job changed a lot. I was teaching in an independent school for kids who, generally speaking, had money, had support, had loving two parent families. You know, it was a very different situation than what I'm in now, which is teaching in an inpatient rehab for drug addicted teenagers. So many of my students didn't have support, didn't come from money, didn't come from two parent households, have addicted parents have trauma, have violence in their lives. And it's not like the minute I stepped into that classroom, I was able to talk about what it's like to teach kids who are more vulnerable. It's been, you know, four years of being with those kids and seeing patterns and thinking about what's most effective for my students. In fact, yesterday I was giving a speech in Tampa, Florida about the importance of social-emotional learning. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm standing there on stage telling a story and two big ideas came together and kind of exploded (laughs) in my head. And they weren't necessarily things that happened recently. They were things that had accumulated over the past four years. So I think if you're going to write about what it means to be a teacher or what it means to be, you know, whatever it is you do, it's the weight of those accumulated experiences, not like, you know, there are those books that come out, you know, someone went and taught for a year and then they're going to write about like Tony Danza goes and he writes, teaches for a year (laughs) again. And then he (laughs) writes about what it's like to be a teacher again for a year. And actually I have to say, I liked that book. No offense to Tony Danza, but I don't think it's the same thing as writing about, experiences you've had over a long period of time and letting them soak and letting the connections come together for you. So that value of being a teacher of 20 years is more than just, you know, let me tell you all these stories of things I've seen and stuff I've heard. It's it's really about, no, I've seen these trends come and go. I've seen, uh, you know, thousands of students come and go. And here's sort of what I've absorbed over this period of time.
1: Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also think for me, like whenever I'm writing, I'm writing fiction. So that's completely exhausting for me in general. But even, you know, say you're exploring an idea of nonfiction, like you're really putting a lot out there. And if you're not refilling that, like for me, I just feel like I'm getting more and more empty in a way by not having these other sort of like basically my job or other experiences that I have in my life help to fill that up.
0: There was a period of time where people were asking me to work on stuff while I was working on the book and while I was still writing pretty, oh, and I was writing, I was writing a biweekly column for the New York Times about, called the Parent Teacher Conference. So not only was I writing my book, I was writing a column, I was writing periodically for the Atlantic and there came a certain point where I said, I'm out of words. I got nothing extra. Like all of the words are going to the places and there's nothing left for me. And Mm. uh, well, and there's nothing left to put out there. So there, there did come a time where, you know, there were more hours in the day, but there just weren't more words to put in, you know, to put down on the, on, on paper, so to speak.
2: That was one of the things that I wanted to ask about was where does, so where does freelance writing fit in on, in this? And how do you, how do you see that as
0: your like overall career as a writer? It's, Well, it's so hard. Okay. So there's so many layers to the freelance writing thing. First of all, not being on staff somewhere, from my perspective, is the best. It's the best and worst of all worlds because it's the best of worlds for me because there's no expectation for me that I have to churn out stuff. I don't have to write about stuff I don't necessarily care about. I'm not on a staff and saying, you know, I'm I don't have to get an article every couple days written. That's just not the, the how it works for me. I have the luxury of saying, oh, this is really interesting to me. Does someone want this? (laughs) The problem is, is that Mm -hmm. occasionally I want to write about stuff that no one wants. Or I wrote about something recently because it was something that I thought was really interesting and important and nobody wanted it. And, you know, okay, fine. Well, then it goes up on my blog and I still think it's interesting. I still think it's worthwhile and I'll just tweet extra hard about it and hope that some people read it. Also, you know, the hard part is for freelancers is that freelancers take a lot of the risks and don't get a lot of the support. Um, I've been very lucky and have worked with fantastic editors, but I'm still not on their staff. So for example, at the New York Times, and i don't i don't talk about this a lot but i guess it's fine to talk about when i was working for the new york times and i was very, very closely affiliated because i was writing a column i mean i was a columnist at the new york times it didn't matter that i wasn't on staff technically people still associated me with the new york times it's in my bio so as far as the New York Times is concerned and as far as readers are concerned, I am representing the New York Times. That means that there's very specific ethical issues that I have to deal with as if I was on staff, like tweeting about politics or speaking for an organization that might be like, getting paid by an organization that the Times might be covering. That's a no-go. So that means I have to say no to speaking events that I would love to take. Just because it's, a, you know, I'm representing the New York Times in the sense that people associate me with the New York Times. So that's really tough. I mean, I think that if you're on staff, there are, you know, great perks. You know, if you're on staff, you get benefits and all that kind of stuff. If you're freelance, you get freedom. But freelancers do bear the burden of the ethical issues having to do with being as if you were on staff, even if you're not. So that's something to think about. Um, You know, if you want to do a lot of speaking, but you also want to write regularly for the New York Times, those two things sometimes don't fit together very well. And that's something to consider. If you want to spout off on uh, Twitter about corporations you do or don't like, or take sponsored content, you can't do that and get paid. Mm -hmm by a you know go to the work at the New York Times it just it it's very very clear in their ethical guidelines for freelancers so that's something to think about for me freelancing feeds my I, I love learning. And, and for me, it's like, my. I used to joke that my dream job was to be a writer who gets interested in something and gets to do a deep dive into the research and then write about what I found. And that's what I get to do. I mean, if there's something that I really find interesting, especially about teaching or about addiction or about whatever, that's now my job, even though, Often I'll go into that deep dive without having already sold the piece. Uh, occasionally I can get lucky and I can say, you know, I'd really like to write about this thing. What do you think? Is that something you might be interested in? And an editor will say, yes, I would love that. And here's, you know, how much we'll probably pay you for that. And it's not a lot. I mean, freelancers don't get paid a lot of money either. And, and that's also part of the gig. And KJ and I talk a lot about this on our, the hashtag am podcast, because freelance writing I get paid wildly different fees depending on, you know, where my writing appears and what it's on. And, you know, I just wrote a piece for the Washington Post that was in the print edition. It was on the front page of the food section. And I got paid way more than that than I get paid for, you know, my regular stuff on education in the Atlantic, that kind of thing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of risk in being a freelancer. And I'm very lucky in that I have a spouse that works. And I'm very lucky in that mostly my speaking and my book writing pays the bills. So I can afford to enjoy the life of a freelancer without having to freak out about, um, you know, where my next freelance paycheck is coming from. But it's a really tough gig. It really is.
1: No, that's super interesting. And a lot of times, I think most of the other, not everybody, but a lot of the other guests that we've had, actually, we've had a couple of journalists on, but basically, they have day jobs that are pretty different from their writing projects. So even the journalists, they have, they're very clear that they were novelists. And so kind of what you're talking about, you have your book projects, and then you have your freelance work and then you have the things that look maybe more typically like a day job, like speaking or whatever. Do you sort of group your freelance and your book writing projects into what you call your writing or do you, I mean, is there a spectrum, I guess, between your job and your creative writing or creativity?
0: <laughs> My work schedule is really weird. So when I'm on the road speaking, and as I said, really, that's to me so first of all, I love it. I love speaking. I love the traveling and meeting new teachers. Most of my, a lot of my speaking happens in schools and I speak to students and, and do professional development for teachers and then speak to the parents. Yesterday I was in Tampa speaking to an organization that does social emotional learning stuff for kids. So, but the problem for me is that traveling makes writing really hard. I just can't, Get in the right zone in hotel rooms. I don't know why. I have tried so hard. I've tried drawing the curtains. I've tried pretending I'm I'm somewhere else. I've tried traveling with a a suitcase full of books so that I have my resources with me. (laughs) Um, It just doesn't work very well. So from my perspective, especially since I have, you know, these contracts with the people that I'm speaking to, and often I'm speaking multiple cities in a row, my job when I'm on the road is to stay healthy and to Mm -hmm. fulfill my contracts. And so that means that, you know, speaking is incredibly taxing. The social side of, for, you know, when I was just in Tampa, for example, I had to do a VIP event the night before I spoke. I get really sort of, I get this boost of adrenaline that doesn't let me fall asleep for a reasonable mm-hmm. period, for a, a period of time. So I tend to go to sleep late and then I try to sleep in and sometimes I can't. So napping is a part of my job when I'm on the road because I'll get sick if I don't. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I've, I've I've learned how to be kind to myself when I'm on the road, and I've learned that as much as I don't want to admit it, I'm not invincible, <laughs> and I do need to understand when I'm traveling that's really hard on me and my health, and I need to think about the next client down the road and make sure that I'm there for them, and so that's been really helpful to me. And then so then I have to plan accordingly. So when I planned for this new book contract my agent and I talked about that. We said, you know, look, your most productive times of the summer when you're not traveling so much for speaking. So let's make sure you get an extra summer until your book is due. So now my book is not due until the end of the summer, 2019. So I get two full summers to work on the book. The freelance stuff is a little different. I can, because freelance stuff is 800 to 1200 or 1800 words, For some reason, I seem more able to do a deep dive into freelance stuff when I'm on the road. You know, I can do my research online and stuff like that. So I am able to work on planes and trains and stuff like that. So I'm able to get that stuff when I'm on the road. But when I'm at home, my deal is no housework, no thinking about the to-do list, no thinking about correspondence, no thinking about answering fan mail, no thinking about, you know, what's on next week's podcast until afternoon. Because morning has to just be for the words. Morning mm-hmm. has to be my um, my time when I earn my sticker. And and for those who don't listen to the hashtag Am Writing podcast, KJ Delantonia and Serena Bowen, who is a very successful self-pubbed romance author, and myself, we have this little triumvirate um, texting triumvirate, and we. Text to each other when we earn our sticker for the day, and sticker can be, for me, sometimes it's editing, sometimes it's my mm-hmm. goals for editing, sometimes it's my goals for research. Today is going to be a research sticker, and I'm going to do it this afternoon. We text each other when we get our sticker, so sticker time is generally speaking in the morning for me, and then I'm mm-hmm. allowed to. The nice thing about that is then when my kid gets home from school. I'm there for him. And I'm not thinking about the writing. I'm not thinking about, you know, something else that I should be doing. And instead it can be us outside walking the dogs and I get to be very present. And that's, that's been really important. And that's, you know, I'm almost 50 and it's taken me a long time to get to this place where (laughs) I figured out how to be present for the people in my life um, and not think, oh, I should be working. That's, you know, that's, and, and the other thing is for those of us who love our jobs, it's really easy to think, oh, I should be working all the time. And plus I love it. And my Mm. husband loves his job. So it's really easy for us both to slip into, oh, we'll just work a little bit, a couple hours this evening, you know, and we'll be sitting near each other. So it's kind of like having time together.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. My husband and I do that all the time. Um, Yeah. It's so it is. It's so hard to let go when you do love your job and when you do lots of different things. Mm -hmm. So how do you you were talking about the traveling and coming home and I have two. My kids are younger than yours. They are in pre K and second grade. Mm -hmm. And so transitions are a big thing in our house. (laughs) Yeah. Managing transitions from one activity to the next, but it's not so much for them as it is for me. And (laughs) do you have anything that you do or any sort of ritual or how do you manage your transitions? I don't travel as much as Olivia at all. Uh, I travel like maybe twice a year for Mm -hmm. work. And when I come home, it's, it takes me a week to recover.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, in fact, today is, I haven't unpacked yet. I got home last night at one o'clock in the morning from the airport. And my, I also, that's the other thing I live for me to fly. out. I generally fly out of Boston or Manchester and both of those are a good, Manchester is, you know, an hour and a half from my house to drive and Boston is two and a half hours. So, I got home really late last night. My suitcase is sitting upstairs. It's bugging me that I haven't unpacked it. You know, no one cleans the way I clean. So the house is just (laughs) a little whatever. And the dogs missed me. And this afternoon, I definitely need to spend time with my kids. So yeah, it takes me a couple days. It also means that I'm really picky about international travel. Um, I've been asked to go to the Middle East a lot. And the problem is then you're talking about days (laughs) of recovery. Mm -hmm. And not just the travel. So I, I think the best thing for me is to give myself permission to have a couple of hours to go to the post office, open all the packages, you know, do those things that are going to distract me and bug me and, and just let myself have it. You know, just what the heck, you know, this is a little bit about being kind to myself again, giving myself the space. The other thing that my husband says I do, it's really funny when I come home, and I hadn't even realized I'd do it, but he calls it walking the perimeter. So when, <laughs> so I'm a big gardener. I have huge gardens. And in the summer, a lot, especially this time of year in New Hampshire, a lot can happen in just a couple of days in the gardens. And um I left. I was gone for almost ten days recently. And I went when I left, everything was brown and crispy. And when I came back, my flowers were coming up and it was green. And I, I had to walk around and like see and pull some dandelions and what, you know, what's going on, what's up, what's, you know, what's happening. And my husband says, it's really funny. Even if I get home late at night and I've been gone for a while, I sort of, I'm out in the garden, just sort of touching things, checking in, you know, what's going on. Yeah. What's come up while I'm gone. So I, I'm totally with you. It takes, those transitions are really, really hard, but I think giving yourself permission to, to have that When I come home from a trip, I usually post on Twitter, um, home again, home again, jiggity jig, and I text tweet a picture of whether it's the dogs or, you know, the condition of, you know, the fact that my suitcase is sitting inside the door and is still unpacked. I don't care. I'm just happy to be home, and I I need to give myself permission to just be happy I'm home.
1: But did that – okay, so I want to stop you there. Basically, this is like my personal therapy (laughs) session, but I like I totally – And this is stuff that Megan and I will often say to each other, like, oh, you know, you just have to accept that or be kind to yourself. But I mean, how long did that take you to learn? Because I travel probably on average, I probably fly twice a week. And like, I just refuse to accept this as a reality. And then every time I'm like, oh, I can't ride on the road, turns out. And it's just hard. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: I, I could be, I could go all hard ass on myself and I could, you know, decide that, I mean, KJ's got, KJ brought up some, some there are some great solutions KJ has brought up that seem to work. If I do need to write when I'm on the road, like if I'm going to be gone for 10 days, I can't always take 10 days off from the writing, especially when I have a book contract. So KJ's advice is just open the document. And it's amazing what happens when you just open the document, because if you don't open the document for 10 straight days, it feels very alien and you lose The buzz, I don't know, you lose whatever it it starts to feel like something that you have to get reacquainted with. So if I don't open the document once a day and sort of at least look at it, then I have a lot of trouble getting back in. So that's something I do, even if I'm not going to spend three hours writing you know, I mentioned the gardening, it took me a long time to realize that taking walks and gardening is often how I untangle problems with my writing. I solved one of the biggest problems I had with the, with gift of failure while I was weeding, because it was just this mindless activity that allowed my brain, it's called default mode in your brain. Um, when you're, in that daydreaming sort of you're letting your brain run, it's called your default mode and it's where the greatest creativity lies. And that's, there's a great book called Wired for Creativity that's mm. about this. There's a whole bunch of books about this. It's, you know, it's not a big secret, but it's important for me to dip into default mode. And that, that happens on a walk with the dogs or that happens when I'm gardening. That is work. I mean, not in the sense that like, oh, I get a sticker for gardening, but it's work in the sense that that's where the, some of the good stuff happens. It's why, you know, a friend of ours that's a journalist has a dry erase board and is in his shower. <laughs> He's, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. That's he has so all awesome. up his best ideas in the shower and if you don't write mm-hmm. them down, you're going to lose them. So... The, in fact, when I used to, I would go out on these really long cross-country skis and I would come home and the first, and I would, and my family kind of knew not to talk to me for a few minutes because I had to come in, sit down immediately and write stuff down or I would lose it because I had been in default mode for two hours and I had tapped into some, I've written entire articles in my head while skiing and I have to come <laughs> home and write that stuff down.
1: Yeah, no, I think those are really
0: good tips. I think You know, being kind to yourself is important in general, but being kind to yourself when you're a writer is sort of like having one foot in the reality of it being a creative endeavor that you can't always summon that yes, yeah. You know, I like to say writing for me is a job and I have to sit down every single day and do it. But on the other hand, inspiration does strike best when I'm in default mode. So If I can put myself in default mode by going for a walk or by gardening and, you know, tap into something that maybe I wouldn't have figured out before, then then that's important, too. So I think it's really important to to see writing as a job, something you have to sit down and do every day and at the same time respect that, you know, sometimes the muses come calling when you're doing the things that are most conducive to the muses. So if that means that it's gardening, or if that means that I'm, you know, the house is not a particularly conducive place for me for the muses today, then I will go to Dartmouth's library, they have this magical room in it's called the tower room. And it looks like something out of Harry Potter. And sometimes the muses are there. So I'll go down to Dartmouth and write for a while. And sometimes that helps.
1: That's really good. And I think we can definitely excerpt that as a pep talk. So thanks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the reality is also, yeah, there is that transition time, but at a certain point, you need to get your butt in gear and put your butt in the chair because Mm. the writing's not going to do itself. And so I can moan and groan about transition times all you want. But, you know, today I'm tired. I would prefer to take a nap, but I I have to get my sticker today. So maybe I will take my book up to bed this afternoon and get my research sticker and then take a nap that's all together possible <laughs> so and, and when I nap I unplug the phone and that's something that napping actually is something that's become sacrosanct in our house so napping is highly respected in the Leahy household <laughs> well and
2: it's another way to tap into that you know subconscious and default mode right yeah. I mean that's when your brain yeah. puts things together and you can wake up with yeah some great new idea
0: That's also, I'm really lucky in that I get to do this. I did not get to do this when I used to have to get up to teach super early in the morning. But generally speaking, when I wake up in the morning, I keep my eyes closed for a while after I wake up and I stay in bed with the dogs. The dogs are very cuddly in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I kind of let my brain in that half awake stage um, for about 20 minutes, I let my brain just go all over the place. And that has been a really productive time for me for the writing. Sometimes it just lets me get ready to do it. Sometimes it's a new idea of some way I could reach out to some person that might be helpful from a PR perspective, but it's a really important time for me. And I do get that that's a luxury, that I don't have to jump out of bed, you know, the moment the alarm goes off. So that's, that's an important time for me, but also one that, one that I realize is very um, special. So.
1: Yeah, but that's so many different possible, like, you know, maybe it's a luxury that you have multiple different times that you can do that, but people can try different things, right? So those are all really good tips.
0: And traveling is a great time for default mode to happen on the plane, on, in mm-hmm. a car. I'm a huge fan of audiobooks, but I also can't write my own stuff when I'm listening to audiobooks. So I'll turn on music instead or just, in, just have there be nothing going on in the car. And then, in fact, in fact, the book I just sold, um, happened, the original idea for the book and this sort of like lightning bolt moment of a bunch of different ideas coming together in one cohesive idea happened on a drive from my house to Boston for a speaking event. And I pulled off the road and I texted Serena and KJ and I said, I figured it out. Here's what it is. And they were like, yep, that's it. And that <laughs> happened because my brain was in default mode during a drive.
2: Mm. Yeah. I keep, post-it notes in my car and uh-huh. a pencil um, yeah. because you never know. And so how do you hold on to your ideas
0: while you're doing other things? Because- That's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, because voice memos are great, but how often do you go back and re-listen to your voice memos? I am sure there I are never. a whole bunch of ideas that I was supposed to pay attention to that I voice memoed. I mean, clearly it was important enough for me to voice memo it on my phone because I have like 25 of them or 30, but I haven't listened to them. I don't know what's there. I need to do that. The other problem for me is because of a head injury I had a couple of years ago, I have to be pretty cognizant of how much time I spend looking at a screen or a page, and so I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and sometimes I listen to my research books, and I use bookmarks in my Audible app, but the problem mm-hmm. is is then, as KJ pointed out, well, that's hell, because then you have to go back and listen to your bookmarks. So it's not that big of a deal. And I've kind of created a routine for it. When I'm done with a book, I go back and listen to all the bookmarks and jot- and at least stick a sticky tab in the physical copy of the book that I have so I know what I wanted to remember. But yeah. I don't have a good system. I can't, you know, I, I, I do keep a pad of paper or my my bullet journal in with me at all times and a pen. But I also come home from trips with things scribbled on the back of receipts and on the back of envelopes and on people's business. Like on a whole bunch of business cards I got just this past weekend, this past trip to Tampa, I wrote little signal words to myself about who this person was and why I want to make sure I get back in touch with them. But so I have to do that now. I have to. That's the other transition time after a trip is receipts have to go to my the person who handles the receipts for me at my speaking agency or up to my assistant or get entered in the computer. I have to go through the business cards that people handed me and make sure I get the information down. I have to make sure I don't throw away those slips of paper that I shoved into my suitcase that have an idea on them. So that's all part of the unpacking. and sometimes that takes a day. So, Mm-mm. but you know, If it makes it easier for you and it makes it more acceptable for you, view view that as an administrative day. And I have those, too. I I schedule administrative days. I schedule book review days, making sure I have gone on all of the applicable formats online and reviewed books that I liked because that's a service I do to other authors. I can't ask people to review my book um, at Goodreads or Amazon or wherever if I don't do it for other people. So I I have a monthly day for that scheduled on my computer, on my calendar. Mm -hmm. Making those things an essential part of the writing, but not necessarily treading on the writing time, I think gives me permission to do everything I need to do and be present for those things when I need to do them. So that I, you know, cause otherwise I would not review books. I would forget. I just wouldn't do it. So if I put on the calendar that this morning is, or this afternoon is for reviewing all the books I've read and I keep a list in my journal, then I'll get to that. So, you know, making it as official as possible, I guess, makes me feel better about the fact that it's work. <laughs> it's stuff I yeah, have for yeah.
2: work. Well, and I think as, I think as writers, we tend to forget that there's more to it than just actually writing words down on yeah. paper. Yeah. Um, and then we feel guilty about taking a walk, or f- or I do anyway. Feel guilty about taking a walk, or feel guilty about reading. I'm currently messing around with an idea for a middle grade novel, so I'm reading a lot of middle grade right now. And like,
0: that's work. That's honestly, that's research. super fun. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's <laughs> I mean, research, and it's, it's research. really fun. Well, and the The other part of that is I think if you are, if you view it as work and you, and you understand that that's part of your process, you're going to be kinder to yourself about your scheduling and about not feeling guilty about needing to be doing something else while you're doing something that's important. The other thing is think about the, and for me, this is really important. Think about the times that you've written to an author and how much it's meant to you when they write back that. It would be really, really easy for me to push correspondence to the back burner, but writing thank you notes and responding to people for whom my work has meant something to them is essential. I can't not do that. That means more to me than just about anything but returning emails doesn't always feel like work but it is it's part of the work and it's correspondence Mm. needs to get thank you notes and correspondence and and fan letters to other authors you know that's all important stuff that's part of the writing life that i think you know carolyn c writes about the importance of writing to other authors and envisioning yourself as an author in order to manifest that life for yourself. And that doesn't end when you start getting published. I think it's more important than ever, actually to establish connections with other writers. And so, you know, I do put all, I do have an auto reply to people who write me fan letters and letters about my work. And it says, you know, I get a lot of these and I'm gonna do my very best to get back to you as soon as possible. And then I I do, I do get, I do answer almost all of my fan mail. So that's part of the work too. That's great. That's and it it makes it work fun, right? You
2: know, if yeah. you can say well, all this fun stuff is part of my work. I don't know, it's just sort of um it's a mindset shift that it's just a mindset shift that helps you find a lot more like joy
0: in what you get to do. Yeah. I mean, I it's it's sort of like it's it's sort of like saying, you know, I have to do this versus I get to do this. You know, yeah. I get I get to go out to my up, either up to my bed or out to my hammock with a, a, with a book that's really enjoyable for me to read. But it's re- also it's research for my next book. And thank goodness, the next book I'm writing is I'm fascinated by the topic. So it doesn't feel like work, but it is. But that also means that family, it can't, you know, it can't override my being present for my kids. But, you know, mm. it, I'm so lucky that the stuff I get to do is fun. But that doesn't also that doesn't mean that I get to be mean to myself because it feels like fun. (laughs) Right, right. Well,
1: and there's a flip side. Like, I always think part of why I want to be a writer, I mean, in these romantic views of being, you know, part of this writing community and stuff like that. And so when you think about, you know, the emails that you write or fan mail or something like that, it's not like, oh, I have to write emails or I have to respond to my correspondence. But it's more like. I'm building this community of people that I'm talking to about ideas and that I'm lucky to do that. So it's not like your long to-do list of emails that you have to write because sometimes it can feel like that email in particular for me. But instead it's like, look how exciting it is to be part of this conversation. Oh my gosh. It's like, holy crap. People, my work means something. I mean, this stuff
0: I typed in this, in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire, you know, meant something to someone in Memphis, Tennessee. And that's amazing to me. And also the, you know, the letters I get sometimes are things like, you know, I, when I started giving my kid more autonomy, I read gift of failure. I started giving my kid more autonomy. And the cool thing about that is she started doing stuff. I didn't even know she was capable of doing, but, and, and, you know, I love those letters. Those are amazing. But the ones I really love are the ones that go on to say, and our relationship improved and Mm. what an incredible place of privilege that I get to be a part of another family's lives and an improved relationship. I mean, I never get over the incredible privilege that is. It means the world to me. And I save all those letters and I just, I cherish them. They're, they're just, it's incredible. It's just a miracle to me that I get to do this work.
1: No, it is super important. Like, I I just think it's so important to be teaching people so much of our society is about being right, you know? So it's so important. The cool, one of the cool things I get to do now is, um, yes, just
0: yesterday, as a matter of fact, I was standing up on stage and I was talking about, you know, the work I do now. And I, I mentioned that I'm a recovering alcoholic and it's amazing to me. Like I talk about it all the time. I'm very open with it because mainly because I'm really, I firmly believe that the shame and the, the secrets around addiction are, you know, what keeps people getting sick generation after generation and um you know and plus I'm writing a book about addiction and so it's part of the conversation but inevitably people come up to me afterwards and they're like oh my gosh I've never said that out loud, and I you know, I totally agree with you and, and blah, blah blah. And so now I've got this whole separate part of the interaction, which is people talking to me about their recovery or their addictions, or, you know, increasingly people coming up to me and saying, I'm a little bit scared. I think I may have a problem, but hearing you say it out loud makes me realize that, yeah, I do, and I think I need to do something about it. Holy crap. This is like mm. me getting to be a part of people changing their lives. And only because I'm being honest about myself and being honest about um, whether that's being honest about what my writing life looks like or being honest about what I get paid for things. KJ and I, you know, f- uh, early on in our podcast, we were inspired by the book Scratch. But by- yeah, I love that book. <laughs> Which, oh my gosh, I love it. So all of a sudden, we found ourselves telling people on you know on the podcast what we got paid for our books or what we get paid for our freelance gigs, and that's really really scary. But by far, the thing that people thank us for the most is honesty about finances, honesty about our schedules, honesty about our fears and, and honesty about when we get rejected, people are like, Mm. oh oh my gosh, I can't believe that you guys, you know, you've been established writers for a long time and yet you still get stuff rejected. Heck yeah, we still get stuff rejected. And I would hate for anyone to think otherwise, because that's part of being a writer. I mean, you know, being honest, I, 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 talk to kids all the time about these overly curated, um instagram feeds where it looks like everyone's life is perfect and that's what that's what makes us anxious and ill and jealous and spiteful and I I just don't want to be a part of that. What I want to be a part of is people talking openly about what it's like to be a writer, what it's like to be um, an alcoholic, what it's like to be in recovery, what it's like to write a book. That's why I talk about the fact that the first draft of Gift of Failure was an unmitigated disaster, but that's what made me a better writer. Those are stories that, yeah, the first time I thought about telling them made me really nauseous, but- Now that I tell them all the time and people thank me all the time for those being the most important stories that I tell, I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm hopeless. I just talk about it all the time, (laughs) talk about the failures, talk about, you know, what has made me have to face, you know, my own problems, my own mistakes. Those things seem to speak most. Those tend to be the things that react, make other people think most deeply. and, And that's all I could ask for.
2: Yeah, and that's that's something that we have been noticing and talking about is not only does not talking about things that, you know, you would you would consider mistakes or consider shameful make it worse, but we've noticed I mean there's just this whole idea that writers should not have day jobs or talk about their day jobs or be honest about the fact that they do other things as well besides sit in a garret somewhere and write. <laughs> and you know why would you take something that's so completely normal and a part of just everyday honest experience mm-hmm. that isn't by any any stretch a mistake or a failure and hide it and then treat the fact that you
0: have to have a day job as being a failure as a writer. Well, and KJ and I also talk about the fact that we're incredibly privileged in that um, we have spouses that contribute to the household budget. And so we have the freedom to be freelance writers. I mean, there, are, we talk to lots of writers who are, you know, single parents and Oh, my gosh, I don't it's so the stakes are so much higher. And so, in fact, one of my favorite one of my very, very favorite writers is this woman named Renee Denfeld, and she wrote the book The Enchanted and The Child Finder. And she works with death row inmates during the day. I mean, that's her day job. And somehow cobbles out all this time to write these incredible award-winning novels. But again, that work feeds, her day job feeds her evening work. And my husband is a writer too. He's, you know, he writes op-eds for the New York Times and, you know, is sort of figuring out what his book is gonna be. And he's a medical ethicist. And that work feeds what he writes about for the New York Times. And without one, he wouldn't have the other. So why there would be shame about People needing to have jobs to feed their romantic vision of writing is ridiculous. I I just don't think that's a – I don't think that's viable for most people.
2: Yeah. I know, Olivia, you've got to go soon. Did you have
1: another question that you wanted to ask? Like a billion, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I guess like since we have three themes, working, writing, and um, friendship, maybe if you could in a really short period of time – maybe summarize how having that, <laughs> that writing group, you know, you're, you're sending each other your stickers and everything like that, but how kind of that helps with your writing.
0: Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, I've been so fortunate again. I just, I'm so lucky in this life, but so my two closest friends are um, also writers and KJ Del Antonia, my podcasting partner was also my editor at the New York times, which was very dicey because we were friends when I started writing for the New York Times, she, whenever people point out the fact that we were friends and I started writing for them for the New York Times, and, and we were also friends, you know, she likes to say, well, the stakes were actually even higher. I had to be even better to prove that it wasn't because we were friends.
2: It's like having your kid in your class.
0: Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, but also having your friend be your editor is just really tough. I think we navigated that really well. There were a few times when I, you know, I would screw up, I would send something that was too long or, uh, you know, and she'd be like, "What? What is, what is this? What are you doing? And, you know, she's, I talked on the podcast recently about criticisms that she's given me as a writer that are hard to hear because they come from my friend. But at the same time, I respect her work so much. Uh, mm-hmm. it, also having a friend that's in the same I mean, we both kind of write about parent. She writes about parenting. And yes, my thing is about parenting, but it's more about education. Being in the same space means that we can help each other a lot. But it also means that people view us as competitors, which is says more about them, I think, than it says about us. <laughs> uh, but having having friends who are writers There are also some friends that I have who are speakers, friends that I have who are also have had books that have done well. There are things I can say to them that I can't say to most people, you know, have being privileged enough to be on a speaking tour and get paid well for speaking to other people and being able to fill, you know, lecture halls is amazing. And I would, you know, I don't Complain about that, but there are parts of it that are hard. And having, for example, Julie lithcott Hames, who wrote "How to Raise an Adult" and "Real American," which, by the way, is a miracle of a book—you really just must read it. Julie and I have have traveled this road together. We had our first books come out at about the same time on almost identical topics, and so we decided to band together instead of being um, competition. And we trust each other. We text each other when the speaking gets hard or, you know, having to be on when you're on the road gets hard, even though it's our dream. We both wanted the same thing and that this is our dream come true, but it would be disingenuous to say that parts of it aren't hard, but there, I can't just go to anyone and say that because I get, I have the dream job. And so, being able to talk about those things with other writers is really, really important. Being able to talk about traveling or or having to, you know, long lines at book signings are a miracle. But they're
1: they <laughs> really, really
0: tiring. And you know, I was was watching Glennon um, Glennon Doyle uh, at a an event where we were both speaking ages ago, and you know, I was saying the way people react to her is freaky and amazing. I mean, people, Mm. people treat her like she's a demigod. It's really bizarre and it's, they want to touch her. It's almost like they want to touch her robes. (laughs) And I said to her as a person who sees herself as a highly emotionally sensitive person, how do you do that and not be emotionally exhausted for days? And she said, I I don't, she said, I am emotionally exhausted for days. You know, there's, She can't do too much of it because it is so emotionally taxing, but it's also the dream. So having people like Glennon to talk to about how exhausting it is to be on and be out there for people who want to have pictures with you and who want to hug you and who want to be a part of, you know, talking about the transformation they've experienced because of your writing is a place of incredible privilege. But um, it's also, you know, a thing that it's really important to talk about with, with people who understand it. So having other writers who get it is invaluable beyond invaluable.
1: No, I really like that.
0: Also the Facebook group that we have for that, the hashtag am writing Facebook group is also so cool because people go there and they're like, look, I just can't get the words written today. Someone say something to me that's (laughs) going to help the words written today. Or someone said, you know, posted just recently, I'm stuck. I, you know, I feel like Mm. just blocked and I can't move forward and I need some help, or I don't know whether I should hire a publicist, or I feel like this person really crossed to me in a weird way. Am I overreacting or is this real? Um, mm. having, that community of writers, I think has been one of the, mo- the biggest gifts that's come out of this podcast. And, you know, they're, it's an incredible place to visit because it's a lot of really supportive writers supporting each other and asking each other questions that maybe you can't ask other places.
1: No, I really like that. And I think that's a really good tip for people who don't maybe have real life. I mean, there are loads of people who are writers and they feel really alone in that. So I think yeah. that's uh, really good. Yeah. Thank you. Megan, I'm going to jump off. Do you mind wrapping up? Happy we got to chat. Me too. I really appreciate your time. We Thank you so much. We were so excited when you said yes. yes. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm so happy. Like we said at the beginning, I mean, there, we have millions of questions that we could ask and (laughs) things we wanted to talk about. It's funny, like, I'm so used to doing this with her that I hate doing things without her
0: now. (laughs) Do you listen to the Happier in Hollywood podcast? We do. Yes. Yes. Yeah, good. So we, KJ and I just recorded an episode with them when we were out in LA. And it was so much fun to finally, you know, get to sit down with them and, their friendship has been, they've been friends forever. And they're not just both writers, they're writing partners. And frankly, we talked to Serena about that a lot because, you know, just being writers in the same room together is one thing, but actually passing, you know, work back and forth and being writing collaborators, that's a whole other realm that, um, I've never, I've never done that. So it was really cool to get to talk to them a little bit about their process as well. One of the perils of having friends as writers is there's always that moment when they hand you your writing, they're writing, and you're like, oh my God, I hope this is good. I hope this is good. I yeah, hope this yeah. is good. And I can report that having read KJ's book, um, the thing that we talked about a lot when she first started writing the book was that the moments, the when KJ is the best in her writing is when it's sheer, unadulterated KJ. It's unfiltered KJ. <laughs> and this book is 100% unfiltered KJ, and it is a joy to read. I'm just... I wasn't just relieved that it was great. I was exhilarated by how great it is. And I cannot wait to just see other people read it and hear other people's comments on it.
2: I cannot wait to read it because being a happier parent is definitely a big important part. How
0: to be a happier parent. She's always been the voice in my life that allows me to think about things slightly differently. Like when I'm freaking out about some aspect of my parenting, she'll completely flip it on its head and say, have you thought about it this way? And I'll just look at her like, who are you and where did you come from? No, I've never thought about it that way. She just has this way of reframing from a perspective that allows me to give myself a break and and I am so grateful to her for that and this book is that's what this book is Well
2: that's really exciting um one of the things that we joke about Olivia and I is not only are we we're like eight hours apart seven hours apart time zone wise we tend to be opposites wherever we are in our kind of emotional emotional landscape of the day which can change by the hour sometimes right uh, <laughs> and so we do tend to be able to give each other that sort of um outside perspective. And then the very next day, in fact, yesterday, she we were texting, and she sent me some advice. And then she said, now remember that tomorrow when I need to hear the same thing. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She's really good at that, too. And we have kids that are We one of our her daughter and my son are the same age and sort of on the same they're in lockstep in terms of their adolescent development. <laughs> and so You know, just when something's happening here at home, I'll text her and I'll say, what is going on with the whatever? And she's like, I know it's happening here, too. So that's also really great to have.
2: Yeah, that is really great. Well, again, thank you so much. And we look forward to being able to talk to both of you next time. We're really excited to hear more about your forthcoming book. Um, I can't wait. Yeah, no, that's I, exciting. I'm
0: so happy. And and it's, like I said, that I had all these ideas for various books that I could do with that sort of obligatory, oh, I've got to do a new book. I got to come up with something. And it was really nice when lightning struck and I was like, oh, that's the book I'm supposed to write. It's It was great.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and you do have to, that was something Olivia was just telling me, well, a couple of weeks ago, but it was in our episode that aired this week on Monday. Um is that you can't rush it and you can't push and you want to write something new and you want to get started on something else because you just finished something. But sometimes it's just not time.
0: Well, and the other thing that was nice was I was talking to Susan Kane who wrote the book Quiet. Oh,
2: I love that book. And
0: I, I do too. And Susan's been a fantastic friend and supporter of my work. And I said to her at one point, I said, you know, I feel a lot of pressure just, I feel it it's coming from me Mm. to write the next thing. And she, and I said, but I really still feel like I'm promoting the gift of failure. And she said, Jess, I'm still promoting quiet. (laughs) And it's been out for whatever, like, I don't even know, 10 years, whatever it's been out for, there will be another book for from Susan, but you know, why, why we feel this constant push to have the next thing come out and have it be in the same vein as or as popular as or, you know, the follow up to, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Sometimes giving things room to breathe is the answer. And I'm really, really glad I did. I'm also really glad I was forced to do nine months of preparation on the um, on the proposal for this book, because my early drafts of the proposal were not were kind of half baked. And so my agent really pushed me hard to get a really good vision of this book. And so nine months later, sold the book and I know exactly where it's going. So that's that was really the impatient me was really frustrated. But the current, you know, to summer of 2018, Jess is very, very happy that my agent Lori Abkemeyer was so persistent in making me take some time.
2: Yeah, well, and I think that's that's a really good lesson and something that I think we always all need to hear.
0: Yeah. Well, especially since Gift of Failure went really fast. The proposal happened in like light speed. And so I guess I kind of thought it was going to go that fast this time. But Gift of Failure was a specific situation where there were, you know, there was a viral article and there was a lot of publicity and there were, you know, a whole bunch of publishers waiting to see the proposal. So this time around, it was really nice to have the room to breathe. Um, And instead of thinking, oh, why didn't this one go as fast as Gift of Failure? I can say, well, you know, thank goodness this one didn't go as fast as Gift of Failure because the book proposal wouldn't have been as good.
2: Right, right. Well, good luck with your, I'll let you um get to your Thank stickering. You. So. Thank you. And my nap. Yes, yes, that's <laughs> always
0: important too. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. I really appreciate it. And this has just been so much fun. It
2: has. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week.
0: You can find us
2: online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please
1: subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any
2: amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Scottie Couty Show notes for every episode are available at MarginallyPodcast.com.
1: Thanks for listening. Um, Megan, I will hand over to you. (laughs) I've been monopolizing (laughs) this.